Paul says, I preach Christ as of first importance as the one that was crucified. Not as a secondary doctrine, but as of first importance. In other words, you take the cross and the resurrection out of the Christian life, and Paul says we're all a bunch of miserable people. If Christ has not been, first of all, crucified and then glorified, we should all go home and just enjoy life. So, the cross is vital. And if we fail to understand the purpose of the cross, we abort God's eternal purpose. And that's why it's so important that we understand. The cross really is God's medicine for man's sickness. Let me say that again. The cross is God's medicine for man's sickness. <clears throat> Imagine if you woke up with a blinding headache, you're throwing up, you've got aches and pains, you've got a, a persistent cough, and you just feel lousy. You go to the doctor, the doctor diagnoses your condition, prescribes some medication, you go home, he says, you need to rest, come back and see me in a week's time. By then, you should be back to your old self again. And so you take the medication two or three times a day, you follow all the doctor's orders, you drink plenty of fluids, so on and so forth, and at the end of the week, you still have all the same symptoms. Something is either wrong with the diagnosis or something is wrong with the medication. Isn't that right? In other words, if that medication really takes effect, it should bring you back to your old self, so to speak. I should say spiritually your new self, but you know what I mean. In other words, I'm feeling great again. Headaches have gone, aches and pains have gone, I'm no longer throwing up, uh, you know, I've got strength, vitality, you know, feels great. You know, I've got over the flu, got over whatever it is, coronavirus or whatever you're worried about. <clears throat> But in order to understand the medication, we've got to know what we look like originally. In other words, when we go back to God's old self, God's purpose. Now, before I get too far astray, let me take you into the epistle of John for a moment. I'm going to digress, but uh, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation. In 1 John chapter 2, Three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14, John says, I write to you children, I write to you young men, I write to you fathers. He's not literally writing to the Sunday school department, the youth department, and the AARP crowd. He's writing to three levels of spiritual maturity. We begin the Christian life the way we begin life in the natural. We all came into this world as a baby. Any exceptions? I don't think so. And the wonderful thing about a baby is it has no past. It may wake up in the middle of the night screaming, but if it could articulate the reason for that scream, here it is, three weeks old, and it's able to articulate. Mother comes in, what are you crying about? And the baby says in fluent English, it's all those horrendous things I did years ago. They've come back to haunt me. No, a baby has no past. If any man be in Christ, he has no past. And so he says, I write you little children in verse 12 because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. We begin again the Christian life with a realization that we're a sinner. We need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. And then the Christian life begins. He also says, I write you little children 
The end of verse 13, because you know the Father. Again, when we are born in the natural, if it's a normal home, we come into a relationship with Daddy. Isn't that right? Abba. And while children are wonderful, my wife, every time she sees a baby, just about uh, loses it. But uh, as they say in New Zealand, she gets clucky. Um, any farmers here? Yeah, okay, some of you would understand that, a few of you. But uh, as wonderful as a baby is, if it remains a baby, it's one of the greatest tragedies. Isn't that right? One of the greatest hardships that you can put on a family is to have a baby that does not develop. The constant need for attention and so on and so forth. So Paul says, I write to you young men, babies grow, or they should. Newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, what that you may grow. And we grow into young men or young women. And we realize as we begin to grow that there is an adversary. He is out to sabotage our faith. He's out to undermine our faith. He's out to bring doubts and fears and accusations and condemnation, all of those things. And we've got to learn to overcome the evil one. So he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. If I were to put that in a more logical, at least in my mind, more logical reasoning, I would say, I write to you, young men, because the Word of God abides in you. Because the Word of God abides in you, you're strong. Because you're strong, you can overcome the evil one. He's not talking about working out at the gym, pumping iron, and so on. He's talking about knowing who you are in Christ, knowing what Christ has done for us, and therefore we can use that against the adversary. And then he says, I write to you, fathers. And he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him that is from the beginning. And he repeats that again in verse 14. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him that is from the beginning. I'll have to be honest here as a teacher that I've always been disappointed in Paul's or, or John's revelation of fathers. Because if you see this as a graph, I write to you, children, your sins are being forgiven. You know the Father. I write to you, young man, you're strong. The Word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. I write to you, fathers, because you've been on three 40-day fasts. You've raised the dead. You've cleansed the leper. You know, something with a sort of a wow factor in it. And all he says is, you know him that is from the beginning. But he says to the children, you know the father. So what's the difference? Well, fathers understand that their children know them from a very selfish point of view. Isn't that right? Daddy do this, daddy do that, daddy push me on the string, daddy buy me an ice cream, daddy tuck me into bed, daddy read me a story before you tuck me into bed, daddy, 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 yes darling, what can I do for you next? You know, and we are reduced down to the role of a servant, and the master tells us what to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, God is a condescending Father, and He understands our level of spiritual maturity. But uh, there's something more here. It's this word, beginning. I've said all that to get to this, the word, beginning. If I were to break these three levels down, the first one would be the word, regeneration, they're born again of the Spirit of God. The second one would be maturation. They've begun to grow and develop. And the third one would be consummation or the culmination. In other words, fathers see the big picture. And one of John's favorite words more than any other writer in the New Testament is the word beginning. 
He begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. He begins his epistle, in the beginning. He gives us the book of Revelation. I think something like 15 times John uses this word beginning. And we will never understand the cross until we understand the beginning. Okay, I've said all that to get to that one point. We will never understand the purpose of the cross until we go back to the beginning. I'm a beginnings guy. The book of beginnings. We live, the Bible says, in a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, everything we see has been distorted by the fall. And in order to understand God's purpose, we have to go back prior to that distortion taking place. I'll give you an illustration. The Pharisees, the scribes, and so on were constantly trying to get Jesus embroiled in some sort of controversy, trying to trap him. And so they come to him on one occasion and they say, listen, tell us this matter of divorce. Where do you stand? We have Moses on our side. Moses gave us permission to divorce our wives. So where do you stand thinking he's not going to dare touch this? How dare he come against Moses? And Jesus said, in the beginning it was not so. You see, there's the beginning. God's purpose before the fall, it was never there. It's there because of sin. It's there because of the hardness of somebody's heart where you're una unable to say, I'm sorry, and so on and so forth. But in the beginning, it was not so. And so we have to go back to the beginning. You can't restore something until you know what it looked like originally. Isn't that right? If somebody gave you something that has been uh, broken, maybe pieces missing, and so on and so forth. Let's say you go into some sort of a you know, goodwill or something, you see a piece of furniture there, you think, boy, that looks like a pretty good piece of furniture, and you recognize it as, uh, as being a very valuable piece. The problem is somebody has painted it bright, bright yellow and uh, taken the knobs off and put, uh, you know, clear plastic knobs on and so on, but you recognize for some reason it rings a bell, this has got some sort of value to it. But you need, if you're going to restore it, you need to know what it looked like originally. You need to find the original one you know, a Chippendale piece or whatever it is, find out the right hardware and so on, the right uh, things that have to be put on. Otherwise, it has no value. And so in order to understand the cross, we need to go back to the beginning. So let's uh, go back to the book of Genesis this morning. And let's look at man as he rolled off God's assembly line, so to speak. Genesis 2 and verse 15. Keep in mind now, this is God's original purpose for man. Before sin, before the fall, before there was any rebellion against God. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. There are three words that I want to draw your attention to. They're not in the verse, but they're implied. The word submission the word location, the word vocation. The word submission, the Lord God took the man. God as Lord, as master, if you like, as king, as owner, as creator. He took the man. It doesn't say that man objected. It doesn't say that man resisted. It doesn't say that man dug in his heels. He was Lord of his creation. And so the word submission. The second, the word location. 
he took the man and he placed him in a geographical place of his choosing, not of man's choosing. He doesn't give man a personality test and say, listen, you know, if you're into, if you've got a green thumb, I've got this incredible garden, all these beautiful flowers and so on and so forth. It's a horticultural delight and so on. On the other hand, if you're a little artsy, you know, I've got this villa down on the beach with these incredible sunsets and I'll give you a set of paints and, you know, you can, no. He says, this is where I want you. And he places them in a geographic location and then in that location reveals his vocation. I've got a calling for you. I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. I, this is my garden. I want you to cultivate it, keep it strong. Now, I am convinced that if we fully understand the cross and we'll work our way through, God wants to come into your life at any given time without any re, uh, rebellion on your part, without any, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, where you are totally submissive to His Lordship, where He can take you and place you wherever He chooses whether it's Lakeland or whether it's uh, Africa or China, wherever it may be. And then in that location, reveal his vocation. I place you here for this reason. I have a job for you to do. You are to fulfill my will and my purpose in that place. Now, that was God's original plan. Obviously, the enemy came in and tried to thwart that plan and so on, messed it up a little bit and so on. But what we're going to do now for a few moments, we're going to try and get into the mind of God as it pertains to the beginning of things. In other words, what was God's original intention? We've got to understand that, otherwise we don't understand the cross. And so uh, let's uh, look at some scriptures, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 and verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him. Let me pause there. I trust you don't have a problem with that. God is the creator. Almost every book in the Bible, every page of the Bible declares him to be the creator. We did not evolve out of some slime ball that made its way, you know, out of the mud and millions of years ago. We were made, created in the image of God by God. And so Paul says all things were created by him, and then he adds, and for him. And for him. In other words, God didn't just sort of have a day off, wasn't sure what to do that day, and thought, you know, I'll create the earth, and, uh, you, know, you know, I'll make something that looks like me. And no. All things were created by him and for him. That's God's original purpose for your life, for my life. We were created specifically for God Himself. Revelation 4 and verse 11. One of the old Scripture in song. How many of you remember the old Scripture in song songs? Verse 11, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of your will... They existed and were created. Or the King James says, and for your pleasure, they were created. In other words, God, you created everything, but you created everything for your will, for your pleasure, for your purpose. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Sorry to jump around so much, but I'm trying to, again, give you an understanding of what was in the mind of God here. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, speaking of Christ, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Let me put that in the order of the other verses. It was fitting for him through whom are all things. In other words, he created all things. And then it says, and for whom are all things. In other words, you were created by God, but you were created for God. That was God's original plan. That was God's original mindset, if you like. Romans chapter 11. If I said Romans 12 and verse 1, how many know that verse? Hopefully most of you. Not too many know the verse before that. This is the worst chapter division, I think, in the Bible. As you know, chapter divisions were not inspired. <laughs> Paul did not write a book, the book of Romans, and say chapter 1, verse 1. It was a letter. Verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I think the monk of the monkey that was dividing up the Bible that day decided to take a coffee break because there was an amen there, and I'll come back, I'll start another chapter. I don't know, but uh, it's not a good chapter division. But Paul says this, I believe it's one of Paul's greatest revelations. He says everything comes from God. God is the one that is the creator of heaven and earth. Not only is God the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. In Him we live, we move, we have our being. All things are held together by the word of His power. So it is from Him, through Him, and then to Him. He is the consummator of all things. Therefore, therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you give back to God that which is from Him, that which is through Him, that which is to Him as your reasonable offering of worship. There is a connection. If everything comes from God, if everything is held together by God, if everything belongs to God, the least you can do is give back to God that which came from Him, that which is sustained by Him, and that which is going to find its ultimate consummation in Him. This is a great verse, incidentally, to analyze any doctrine through. Is it from God? Is it through God, but ultimately, is it to God? You take the prosperity message that has sort of plagued the church for the last whatever. Is it from God? Yes. Riches and honor come from thee. I could rattle off numerous scriptures. Is it through God? Yes. Every blessing is in Christ Jesus. He's the one that all the promises culminate in and so on and so forth. But is it to him? No, it ends in us. My father used to tell the story of the man who was making his way around the, I think of the full gospel businessman or something in those days. He had a rags to riches story about when he was a little boy in the depression years. He saved up something like four or five dollars, which was these days would be like having a thousand dollars as a kid. He went to church and there was a missionary there talking about the needs of the mission field, the little babies with their extended bellies and so on. He had all of his $5 in 
loose change, and uh, so the offering came by, and he felt guilty, you know, five dollars, and here are these starving children, so he reached in, and he put 50 cents in the offering plate. The missionary kept on begging. Again, he got under conviction. He reached in again. He put another 50 cents in. Missionary kept on and on and on. Finally, you know, the little boy was so convicted, he reached in, took the rest of the change. He put the whole $5 in the offering plate. And he said, I want you to know, I gave everything to God that I had when I was seven years of age or whatever the age was. And he said, today I am a multimillionaire. And the place erupted in praise and so on. But there was a little old lady on the front row. She wasn't nearly as impressed as everybody else. In a whisper that everybody could hear, she said, I dare you to do it again. It's from him, it's through him, it's to him, are all things. You see, if the doctrine ends in man, there is something wrong with the doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says the same thing. That's why I'm convinced this is one of Paul's greatest revelations. Everything is analyzed, I believe, in the mind of Paul through this. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. One Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. He changes it around a little bit, but it is from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. And we need to grasp that, that everything comes from God. It's sustained by God. It belongs to God. Now, God's purpose obviously was uh, thwarted somewhat by the fall. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned from God's original plan, God's original purpose to gratify and satisfy our own desires. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isn't that right? Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the nature of God, the character, the purpose of God and so on. And the problem is that uh, from the moment you and I are born, self occupies the throne of our life. Isn't that right? A baby, maybe, let's say it's a home birth, and uh, you know, all of a sudden you hear the screaming and the midwife comes out to announce to the family, another little baby boy or girl. And it isn't long before that baby's cleaned up and uh, everybody wants a piece of the baby. Oh, isn't he cute, or isn't she beautiful, and so on and so forth. Can I hold the baby? And the baby thinks, wow, this is a wonderful world that I've come into. Everybody thinks I'm the king of the castle. Everybody thinks I'm wonderful. Everyone wants a piece of me, and so on. And that little hard drive begins to get programmed right from the get-go. The baby gets exhausted from being passed around, puts in the back room, swaddled back up, Lights all go off, two hours go by, the baby wakes up and thinks, what happened to my fan club? How did I get back in the womb? You know? And it lets out a bellow, rings the bell. Somebody comes running in, turns on the music box, glide a rocker, and the baby thinks, aha, all I have to do is ring the bell. <laughs> and the maid will come immediately take care of my needs. 
It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. The light's off. The bell rings. <laughs> Father's actually, this is, this is true. Father's a tone deaf from 10 o'clock till 6 in the morning. <laughs> just, it's just a fact. Right, Brandon? See, I told you. Uh, would an elder lie? I mean, <laughs> just one of those things. Mother goes running in, picks up the baby again, the glider rocker begins, and so on and so forth, and the little baby thinks, ha ha, train up a mother in the way she should go, and when she's old, she'll not depart from it. And so we learn to get our own way. We learn to get the biggest piece of cake. We learn to blame brother or sister. You know, it wasn't my, isn't that right? The problem is now, self, when it looks at the cross, says, what's in it for me? What has Jesus Christ done whereby I will benefit? And now that that comes the message, Jesus Christ hung on the cross so that you could go to heaven. That's the good news. The problem is it's the only news. It's the only news. And that's where we have a false understanding of what the cross is really all about. I'm going to use an illustration. I've used it for years. But imagine that my wife and I, when we got married, this is not true, it's just a make-up illustration. But imagine when we got married, we had a multitude of debts. And so we sit down together on our honeymoon and we say, listen, we have to get rid of these debts before anything else. And she agrees, and so we get as many jobs as we can. And at the end of the first year of marriage, we pay off all of our debts. We've lived a rather Spartan uh, lifestyle during that year. We haven't gone out to eat hardly at all. We've saved every penny to pay off our debt. We've also established during that first year of marriage a reputation in the community where we live as being Mr. and Mrs. Clean. Our house is always immaculate, even though we don't have a lot of furniture, but the windows are always Windex, you know, the place is immaculate, and so we've established that reputation. The year comes to an end, and we go out to celebrate, to splurge. Darling, let's go out to eat. We haven't eaten out for a year. Where would you like to go? How about McDonald's? <clears throat> and so we're sitting there, and I say to her, darling, you know, I really miss having a car. We've done without a car. I'm tired of people picking us up and taking us to church and so on and so forth. Wouldn't it be great if we had our own wheels? Keep in mind now, not only have we paid off our debt, we have $1,000 in the bank. And I say to her, why don't we buy a car? And she sort of snickers and said, you think you can get a car for $1,000 because I'm not going to go into debt. And I say, listen, I, I believe we can get a car for $1,000. It won't be a new one, obviously, but uh, I believe we can get something that's reliable. And she said, if you really think so, go ahead, but not one penny more than $1,000. I say, okay, this is my department. You pray. 
I go out scouring through all the old car yards. I finally find a car. It's 25 years of age. It's filthy, but the engine seems to be running well, and so on. I buy that car, $995. A couple of dollars left to put some gas in it, and I drive it home. The problem is, I have a reputation. I'm Mr. Clean, and this car is filthy. And so I immediately drive it around the back of the house, and I begin washing that car. I get a huge five-gallon pail of water, put plenty of soap in it, get some sponges and different things, and I begin washing that car. I wash every trace of dirt from it. I'm a fanatic. I take out the seats. I get the vacuum cleaner. I vacuum the place inside and out. I shampoo the carpets, I armor all the dash, I blacken the wheels, I cut and polish that car. By the time I get through, five hours later, that car looks like it came out of the showroom. There's not a trace of dirt anywhere on that car. And then I take all the cleaning material into the house and I pile it on the kitchen table. I've got dirty towels, I've got filthy paper towels, I've got a sponge, I've got a bucket of now absolutely filthy water. I take the contents of the vacuum cleaner, I shred the bag, I shake out all the dust, and here is this huge, huge pile of filthy rags and dirt and everything. And I call my wife from prayer and I say, darling, come here, quick, quick, quick. I say, look how effective your prayers have been. I bet you never dreamed that I would get that much dirt for $1,000. And she looks at me and she said, I thought you went to buy a car. What was the object of my payment? Did I waste $1,000 for something I hate or something I love? You see, we've made the gospel all about the dirt. I could say, and take this with a grain of salt, it was a byproduct. That was not God's original intention. You see, your dirt has no value. Your dirt can't prophesy, your dirt can't testify, your dirt can't tithe, your dirt has no value. In fact, when God gets a hold of your dirt, He buries it where? In the depths of the sea. And Corrie ten Boone used to say, he puts up a little sign, no fishing here. <laughs> he hates your sin. He is of, of holy, holy eyes, the Bible says, that he can't behold iniquity. As far as the east is from the west, what? so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God is not interested in your sin. He doesn't have a sin collection. You know, he doesn't have these great big volumes up in heaven. Every once in a while when there's peace on earth, he gathers around with a few cherubim and seraphim. He says, hey guys, have I ever showed you my sin collection? See this one here? There's only three of these in the whole world. I've got two of them. <laughs> See this one here? It's only one of these. I've got it. This one here I've been after for years. Got it on eBay the other night. I was the highest bidder. You know. This one here, the only sin of its kind committed by an old man up in the mountains of Tibet back in the 16th century. 
No. God does not have a sin collection. He hates your sin. He removes it as far from his sight as he possibly can. What he died for was the car. But he has a reputation to uphold. He's Mr. Clean. And if he drives around in a dirty car, there goes his reputation. And so he washes you so that you will look like him and talk like him and so on and act like him. Now let's look at some scriptures that talk about the purpose of the cross. Romans chapter 14. You say, well, that sounds right, it sounds logical, but, uh, you know, give me some scriptures. Romans 14, 7 through 9. Not one of us lives for himself, no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, notice that little phrase, for to this end Christ died. For this reason Christ died. For this purpose Christ died, that he might be Savior. Oh. That he might be Lord. He died to reestablish lordship. Yes, he is our Savior, but he didn't die just to be your Savior. He died to this end, that he might rule your life, that he would be Lord of your life. That's why he died. The book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Verse 13, sorry, Titus chapter 1, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Let's pause there for a moment. You notice if you can read it, there are two sides to the cross. There is, God's, there is man's side and there is God's side. Because we are selfish, we look at the cross and we say, what's in it for me? And obviously there is something in it for us. On this side of the cross, we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. We're taking out of the kingdom of darkness. We're transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. On this side of the cross, we come into a new family. We can say, Daddy. The Bible says the Spirit of God bears witness. You are familiar Everybody that is born again, in the sound of my voice, we are familiar with man's side of the cross. Thank God that Jesus Christ died in order that we might be forgiven. So this side, again, we have forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, all the blessings and so on. But then notice that Paul says something else. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And the Bible defines sin as a lawless deed. Sin is the transgression of the law. So in other words, he died to redeem us from sin and purify for himself a people for his own possession. 
what the blood cleanses on this side of the cross, the blood claims on this side of the cross. Let me say that again. What the blood cleanses, the blood claims. He forgave us, but what did God get out of it? A people for his own possession. Zealous for good works. This brings us back. You see, again, the cross is God's medicine for man's sickness. God gets back ownership. We get cleansing. We are adopted into the family of God and so on, but God reclaims us now. Purify for himself a people for his own possession. We all have possessions this morning. If I were to take one of your possessions, I would be guilty of what? Stealing. Will a man rob God? Malachi, we use it for tithes, but there's a far worse robbing of God than tithes. It's not giving God what he rightfully owns. That's the greatest robbery. Tithes are nothing in comparison to that. In fact, the reason we don't tithe is that we don't understand that we belong to him. And therefore, everything that we have belongs to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 15, he died for all, again we're talking about the atonement here, the cross, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. Now the Bible says before you and I were born again of the Spirit of God, all of us, every single one of us, no exceptions, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned to his own way. We do our own thing. Whatever gratifies and satisfies the flesh that's what we did prior to coming to Christ. But Paul says the cross is to change that. We are to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. In other words, the cross is to have a radical change in your life. It's to redirect your entire purpose in life. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm now living for God. In fact, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord thy God and serve Him. No, you were ahead of me. That's love your neighbor. But before you love your neighbor, it's loving God and serving Him. That's part of loving God. You can't say, I love you, Lord, but I won't serve you. Now, if I haven't convinced you, let's go to Revelation. We had a great time of worship there basically centering around this chapter, Revelation 5. They see the Lamb standing as if slain, and all of heaven erupts in this great song. In verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord. Oh, sorry, worthy art thou to take the book and the break of seals, for thou wast slain. Again, the death of Christ, you died. You were the Lamb that died. And didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice it says that when he died, he didn't simply wash people, he purchased for God men. You see, the problem is we've made the cross all about our benefit, 
All I want to do is make sure I get through the pearly gates, my passport's up to date spiritually, you know, and I can get in. But the fact is, the cross really is about God. It's really about God. God is the focal point of the cross. Jesus Christ purchased for God with His blood men. God, I'll go and I'll bring all those prodigals that were deceived by the enemy. I'll bring them back to you, Lord. From every tribe and tongue and nation, those that believed a lie, that it was better for them to serve themselves and do their own thing, and pleasure is found in doing my own thing. God, I'll come down. I'll live a sacrificial life. I'll prove to them. And I will win them and bring them back. So he purchased with his blood men, not sin. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me give you a brief testimony. I was uh, raised in a Christian home. Two brothers. I'm the middle child. The most balanced. <coughs> no. Um, <laughs> older brother, younger brother. And both my brothers were top of the charts when it came to school. Always at the top. Always brought home A's. My younger brother went on to get his master's, or PhD rather, ended up at the Smithsonian Institute as one of the main curators there in African art and so on and so forth. Tragically died at 52. I won't get into that. My older brother is a missionary in Argentina, but they were, the, they were always at the top of the class. I was put into the Ravenhill family by the sovereignty of God to bring humility. And I consistently brought home F's, which I thought meant fantastic until I, no. I hated school, but I enjoyed art. I was artistic. I could draw, at least I thought I could. And you could just leave me alone, give me some paints or give me a pencil or whatever. I could copy just about anything and so on. My brothers couldn't even draw water. <coughs> They could draw flies, no. Um, <laughs> but I love to draw. And I had one goal in life, and that was to go into the field of graphics. It was my passion. I could not wait to get out of school and go into some sort of college and get involved again in design work, art, and so on. I may have accepted Christ as a child. I don't have a, a vivid memory of that. In fact, I have a very poor memory of my early years. But no doubt, being in a Christian home, I was, you know, asked Jesus into my heart as little children do. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That can be very meaningful. But I don't remember consciously giving God my life. We moved from Ireland to America when I was uh, almost 15. And from about the age of 14 to the age of 18, God was dealing with me. I would literally shake under conviction of sin. I mean, many, many times. Couldn't even hold the hymn book at the end of a meeting. Knowing that God was trying to draw me to himself. And yet refusing to bow the knee to his lordship. Because I knew his lordship meant that I would have to give up the thing that I loved the most. And that was the field of graphics. And the battle raged. I knew I was going to hell. My father had made that very real. I'd been dangled over it enough to know that it was real. 
And I knew that if I died in my sleep or any time for that matter, I was going straight to hell. There was no question in my mind about that. But I had such a desire to do my own thing that I refused to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Finally, at the age of 18, in a meeting of about this size, maybe a little bigger, I made my way forward. I knelt at an altar similar to that one there, and before anybody came to pray for me, my prayer was, Lord, you know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I rattled off whatever sins I could think of at the time, but I said, Lord, I'm not here tonight just to give you my sin. I'm here to give you my life. And I knew what that meant. It meant an end to my plans, to my goals, to my dreams, to the things that I love the most. Oh, I was a good kid. Never smoked a cigarette in my life. That used to be the big, big sin back in the days. Never had a drink in my life. Never had sex outside of marriage. I've applied for Guinness Book of Records, but they haven't acknowledged it yet. But no, I was a, I was a, in fact, the night I got saved, my father said, David, what happened to you tonight? I noticed you went forward. I said, Dad, I got saved. He looked at me and said, David, you mean you weren't saved? In other words, I lived a godly, quote unquote, life. But I knew inside Jesus Christ deserved better. He is Lord. And at the age of 18, again, gave my life to God. I've told people around the world, I think in the average church, and I hope this is not the average church, but in the average evangelical Pentecostal church, I dare say that 90% of the people, maybe even higher, have given God their sin, but maybe less than 10% have given God their life. We give God our sin, and He doesn't want it. What he wants is the car. I went home that next night. I opened my Bible, and this was the portion of Scripture that has become my life verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. Notice what this verse is about. It's about your body. It's about the car. Do you not know that that car belongs to me? I paid for it. Therefore, use that car for my glory. Let me read it again. Do you not know that your body, not your sin, he's not interested in your sin. Your sin has no value to God. He wants the body back, the body that he created, a body thou hast prepared for me. I know that applies to Jesus Christ, but in another sense, it also applies to us because we are the body of Christ. He can't function without a body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. This is the thing that redeemed us. Redemption, to buy back. The cross is all about redemption. It's not just about forgiveness. Yes, forgiveness is included in it, but ultimately it's about God getting back what He created for Himself. 
I can take you back to the Old Testament. We don't have that much time, but Exodus chapter 15, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Miriam grabbed a tambourine. They began dancing. <coughs> and it says in verse 16, Terror and dread fell upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They are motionless as stones, talking about the Egyptian army, until thy people pass over, until the people pass over whom thou hast purchased. The blood of the Lamb, even in the Old Covenant, it was God's plan to purchase for Himself a people. And there's numerous scriptures about that. When the angel came to Joseph, and he said to Joseph, your wife is going to have a child, and that child is going to save his people from their sin. Notice we, we talk about the sin, but the fact is, he is going to save his people. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. When he came to Mary, Gabriel said, you're going to give birth to a king. You can read it there. Luke 1, verse 31 and verse 32. He shall be great, and his throne will be of the throne of David and his kingdom. Isn't it interesting? You're not just going to give birth to a savior. You're going to give birth to a king that's going to rule. Let me ask you a question. Why was Jesus Christ crucified? from man's point of view. We know from God's point of view, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. But why did man put Jesus Christ on the cross? Jesus told us why. He said there was a certain man, referring to himself, who went to establish a kingdom for himself. And after he set things in motion, he left. And the inhabitants got together and they said, we will not have this man rule over us. That's why Jesus Christ ended up on a cross. We will not have this man reign over us. Now, isn't it interesting? You and I come along as a sinner, and we recognize only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse me. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can set me free from my bondage, my sin, my pornography, whatever it is. Jesus, I need you. Wash me. Cleanse me. Come into my life. But let's get one thing straight, Jesus. I will not have you reign over me. Oh, we don't say it in so many words, we simply don't preach it. And some of the world's greatest evangelists never deal with God's side of the cross. I won't name names. But they're basically saying, I want your forgiveness, I don't want you ruling over me. Let's look at a couple more scriptures here before we close. Go with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets arose among the people. Now, I was never very good at English grammar. Thank God for proofreaders that have done my books, but... Uh, I do know this, that that's past tense. False prophets arose, right? So in other words, Peter is saying, we have had a problem in the church 
with false prophets. And then he says, just as there will be. What is that? Future. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce damnable doctrines or destructive heresies. So this is a prophetic warning of what is coming. False teachers are going to come into the church. And they will come in subtly. They will come in secretly. And you won't even know what's going on. Nancy and I were missionaries in New Guinea in the early 70s. And uh, New Guinea at that time had a tremendous amount of uh, crime. One of our neighbors had been raped. We'd had our car stolen. We recovered it. But uh, I made sure every night that I locked the front door of the house. Our house was built up on concrete pylons about 8 or 10 feet high, partly because of the uh, air circulation, also some deadly snakes and so on. Went to bed, got up one morning, walked down the hallway into the living area, and I noticed the front door was wide open. And I thought, That's, that can't be. I remember locking that door, positive I locked that door, and then your mind plays tricks on you. You think, well, maybe you didn't catch it properly, or maybe you forgot it. And I thought, anyway, I closed the door, went into the kitchen, and noticed that the kitchen door was open, and there was a window at the side of it. They'd cut through the mosquito netting, removed all the louvered windows. Somebody had come into the house. I immediately ran in to check on the children. We had two girls at the time. The kids were in bed, thank God. Went back into the bedroom, and I noticed that my wallet, billfold, if you like, was missing from the side table where I went to bed. On my wife's side of the bed, we had gone to bed listening to a tape from a friend of ours, cassette, They'd reached under her pillow and unplugged the tape recorder, and the whole thing was gone. And I realized we'd had intruders, intruders right, literally right beside us during the night. But it was done secretly. I had no idea. And the Bible says there's going to come a time when into the church is going to come a false teaching. And it will be damnable. And then notice, even denying the master who bought them. Even, in other words, it will go to this extreme, no Lord. Not the Savior who washed them. We need that. The master who bought them. The book of Jude. Jude, as you know, was going to write about a totally different topic until he panicked. And he said, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Notice again, secretly, verse 4, Jude. I was going to say chapter 1, there's only one. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly people who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, in other words, a false grace message, and deny. Notice. And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. A teaching that allows you to have a salvation without 
any sort of commitment. It is a false teaching. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. What is it that satisfies him? What is it that satisfies the travail of a mother? The fact that there's a baby on the other end. But if there's no baby on the other end, I doubt if there's a woman in this room that would sign up to go through hours and hours of travail without anything at the end of it. And yet that is exactly what we've done. He will see of the travail of his soul and he will be satisfied. Who for the joy set before him? What was the joy set before him? He loved the church and he gave himself up for her. It's you. Book of James and then we will close. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we should go into such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. James is a very, very, as you know, very, very practical book. When we get to heaven, I'm going to suggest that the Lord made a mistake when he let Paul write the book of Romans. James should have written it. <laughs> then we could all understand it. <laughs> just, just one of those things. But James here says, listen, uh, we all basically fit into verse 13. We make plans. This person's plans were, I live in a little tiny town. There's no real value here. I'm going to go to the big smoke because there I can open up a store of some sort and I'm going to make some money. He's not talking about, you know, going into the counterfeit business. He's not talking about opening up some sort of loo joint. He's just talking about doing something that we've all done. Let's face it, the way our system works in high school, we take certain exams at the end, and uh, they tell us again what we are capable of, and so the counselor sits down with you and he says, you know, you, you've got, you're great with numbers, you could be a great uh, accountant, or you're good with uh, chemistry and so on, you could be a, an engineer, a doctor, and so on and so forth, you, you've got a legal sort of a mind, you make a, a good lawyer, and, and so on, and, and so we, we come out of, of high school with some sort of a plan. I'm going to go to college and I'm going to become a doctor, dentist, nurse, whatever it is that motivates you, whatever, you know, you've uh, come through the exam showing that you've got aptitude in that area, and uh, we all do it. And the reason we go to college is because if we go to college, then we can, uh, you know, get a better job, and if we have a better job, we get a better paycheck. If we get a bigger paycheck, we drive a better car, we can live in a better house and have nicer clothes, have better vacations, and so on and so forth, go on cruises when the co uh, coronavirus is not... A in effect, and, uh, and so on. <laughs> but it's all about me. It's all about me. And so here's a person, he simply wants to go into business and make a profit. The problem is he goes to his pastor, who happens to be James, and he's all excited. I can imagine him coming in one day and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. You know, pastor's busy. He said, listen, I've got a day off tomorrow. Why don't you drop by the office at uh, 9 o'clock and we can talk? So, you know, Johnny shows up at 9 o'clock in the morning. He's still clutching this piece of paper. And he said, you know, Pastor, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but, you know, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. Always, that, 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 you know, ever since I started watching Perry Mason. I mean, it's just, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> 
And I finally, this is, this is my acceptance letter from Harvard Law School. I mean, can you believe it, Pastor? Harvard Law School. I'm going to be going. What do you think? And Pastor James looks at him and says, Son, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. It's just a vapor. It's going to be gone before you know it. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Ooh. Johnny, I know you're excited, but I haven't heard you say, God told me to be a lawyer. You said ever since you started watching Perry Mason, this is something that has driven you since you were six years of age. But I didn't hear you say, God told me. Life is too short. You better find out what does God want you to do because that sort of boasting is evil. Verse 16, Therefore, to the one that knows the right thing to do, and he does not do it to him, it is sin. Sin is living for yourself. That's the root. The root of all sin. When Jesus challenged people to follow him, he did not list a multitude of sins. He simply said, die to self. Take up your cross and I'll be in charge. Follow me. Let's stand to our feet. Our time is gone. These altars are open this morning. If you've never consciously given God your life, given God your life, not your sin, your life, if you've never consciously done that, the altar is a place where you present the best. That's the purpose of the altar. You give the finest. Otherwise, it's a reject. If you give anything blemished, you've canceled the altar. God is looking for your life. If you've never given him your life, now's your opportunity. I'm not a beggar when it comes to altar calls. It took me four years. But if you've never consciously said, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Now's the time. Come, we'll only take a moment, find a place. Surrender. That was the word this morning. Surrender, 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 in case you don't remember. God is saying something this morning about surrender. just take another moment I'm assuming then that you're either in rebellion or you've already given God your, your life there's no other choice either I will not have him rule over me or he's already ruling Father we thank you Thank you, Lord, for a fresh revelation of why you died. 
Lord, to this end, that you might be Lord of the dead and of the living. Father, I pray whatever we do in word or deed this week, we would do all to the glory of God. Father, we surrender everything to you. We give you our life, Lord. Take over. Jesus, be the Lord of all, as we used to sing, the kingdoms of my heart. Come and reign, come and rule over my finances, over my life, over my will, over my desires. Be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you, you're free to go. And, uh, God have his way, amen.